This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. On today's show, we are welcoming back the wonderful Penny Moody to chat about The Joy Thief. Penny is a passionate OCD advocate. She has a background in media and communications, and she is currently studying a social work degree. Penny is now the author of a most excellent book called The Joy Thief. In her book, Penny skillfully weaves her own story and battle with OCD treatment, along with the stories of others who also have experienced OCD. In and amongst this, she adds in tidbits and wisdoms of various mental health professionals who work in the area. This is more than a memoir. It is a resource for everyone. In this episode, you'll hear us talking to Penny about her experience of writing such a personal and important book. She'll talk about the impact it had on her OCD, her hopes and wishes for people with OCD, and all the things that she's learned along the way. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Breaking the Rules. We are welcoming back today the lovely Penny Moody, the author of The Joy Thief. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It is most excellent, I would say, on all things OCD as well as her journey. And she's interviewed others in there and discussed topics with experts in there and to the way you've just weaved it all together has just been amazing and it's just such a wonderful resource. So today we're going to discuss all things Joy Thief. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me back. For those who may not have listened to um, our previous interview with you, Penny, and your good friend, Rosie, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm 36. I live in Melbourne and I have been suffering from OCD since I was about six or seven, but I wasn't diagnosed until I was about 31. So it was a really long journey, not knowing what was going on, not knowing that it was something that could be treated. And I guess this is the reason I wrote the book because I kind of learned as I went on and once I was diagnosed with OCD that it's such a common experience for people to spend so many years not knowing what's going on and kind of suffering in silence. So that was the reason I wrote The Joy Thief or one of the one of the big reasons I decided to write it. Yeah, it's an absolutely magnificent book. You're a beautiful writer, Penny. Thank you. You've said it before about how long it took you to receive your diagnosis, but it was really interesting to then read your story, Anguish and the Heartache, on the journey to diagnosis. My question is more a reflection of just really, I think that was really striking just how long it took for your difficulties to be properly identified. And like I said, it's a really common experience for people. And I think there are so many different reasons for that. And you two would both be well aware of these different reasons. You know, I think one of them being just the fact that OCD is still so widely misunderstood in the general population, but also really misrepresented in popular culture. You know, so for a long time, I had seen OCD represented a certain way, 
And that's what it was in my mind. So when I was experiencing my symptoms, it didn't occur to me that that could possibly be OCD and it didn't occur to my parents that that could be OCD. But I think obviously another one, again, which you'd be very well aware of would be um, the fact that a lot of people with OCD will find it hard to talk really openly and honestly about the thoughts going on in their head with a psychologist or with a professional because it's scary and you're worried that you'll be judged or you're worried that the person you're talking to will confirm any of the fears that you're you're expressing. Um, so it's a big leap of faith. So, yeah, I think they're just two of the reasons why there's such a big gap between onset of symptoms and diagnosis for people. Was that part of your motivation for writing the book? Yeah, absolutely. Just kind of meeting a lot of people over the last couple of years with OCD or parents of kids with OCD and realizing this is such a common thing. And, you know, the, I mean, I read lots of different stats, but, you know, I think the one I put in my book was like the average amount of time was about nine years, but then reading it could be up to 17 years. That's, you know, the average. I mean, that's just not really good enough. I remember we had a client when I was working at the Melbourne Clinic who was in their later years of life and that was the first time ever they were receiving treatment and they were in their 60s. And it was just horrible because you could just see that it was so entrenched and insidious and there was just so much to unpack for this person. They were really grateful that they were finally doing it, but at the same time had lived a massive chunk of their life in so much pain because they had had it since they were really little. Was their diagnosis just really recent too? No, they had a diagnosis, but just were so ashamed and so fearful of treatment that it was just a huge barrier. But the more we advocate and the more people write about it and all that sort of stuff, all that gets taken away, right? And hopefully people will be encouraged to access treatment earlier. So Penny, experiencing OCD and living with it and then writing a book about it, which would have been such a vulnerable thing to do. Did your experience with OCD morph over the time of the book? Did it challenge you in some instances? Did it fight back in some instances? Like, What was that roller coaster like? Yeah, it's a really good question. I was a weird, it was a weird experience because I was also experiencing so many different hormones because I was pregnant with my third child when I started writing it. And by the time I finished it, he was one. That in itself is a feat. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It was, it's a blur. It's a blur. <laughs> and there was a lot going on anyway. And I was pretty aware that writing a book like this would take its toll which is why I was really lucky enough to basically speak to my psychologist once a week throughout all that time, which is just such a privileged thing to be able to do in itself. But that really, really helped me kind of grounded and kept me coming back to treatment and ERP and all that. So I think for some of it, it was really cathartic writing it. And actually, you know, on some days I'd be really having a lot of, you know, intrusive thoughts and getting stuck in compulsive behaviors and compulsive patterns but what was really great was that a lot of the time I was writing about you know exposure and response prevention therapy or various treatments self-compassion mindfulness and so I'd get constant reminders of like what I needed to do (laughs) which was actually really helpful for me but of course there were times and even just like reliving and rewriting certain times in my life that were you know when OCD was at its peak which was really difficult and yeah, like you say, like quite vulnerable and which would trigger things for me sometimes as well. So there were times when I couldn't write, like I was just like, I can't actually sit and write today. Like there's too much going on. 
but I'd say on the whole it was quite therapeutic, I think, for me, just to be reminded of the best ways to tackle it because, I, you know, I often forget and I often find myself back in, in the behaviours that I would be doing for so many years of my life before treatment, before diagnosis. But I think chatting to some really great experts in the areas, including you two, it was just, like, it actually gave me so much hope for people with OCD because it seems like so many people are on the same page with where, you know, the best kind of treatment and the best interventions and way more consensus than there there perhaps used to be on, on how to treat it. That in itself is reassuring, isn't it? Because when you're receiving treatment, the doubt can feel so strong and OCD does such a good job of fighting back that you even start doubting whether you're doing the right thing. And we find a lot of people at times keep going back, which is important because like, it helps ground you because OCD does such a good job of making the waters murky again, that when you're hearing the same message from different people time and time again, you're like, no, I know this is what I need to do. I've got this. As opposed to feeding the doubt and hearing different messages and then getting even more stuck. Yes. There's already so much doubt in OCD that you don't want to be doubting your your therapy. It's really reassuring. Like whether you even have OCD, right? Well, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, that's such a thing you guys would see all the time. Yeah. Let alone what am I supposed to do about it? Yeah. And also like what, what I've heard from a few people is like, you know, even reading something like this book, for people with OCD can be triggering experience. I think some people are really worried to consume something that is about OCD or what they're experiencing because maybe they experience it in a different way and then, then maybe the doubt will creep back in or maybe it will trigger an intrusive thought that they might have not thought about for a while. But what I really hope is that there's enough in there that's actually going to be helpful and it might be a little bit of exposure in itself reading something like this, but there's certainly a lot of tools in there that I think I'm hoping will help people in the long run. Yeah. Have you had any feedback from people with OCD? I mean, I bet you have. Yeah. I've had really, really beautiful feedback from people of all different ages. And just like Celine was saying before, like actually a lot of older people who, you know, might be in their fifties or sixties who have recently got a diagnosis and to which are starting treatment. I mean, it's never too late, really. Like you can always tackle it wherever you are. And also, yeah, a lot of a lot of messages from parents with kids who have OCD who are really struggling, you know, who who feel really alone and really unsure of what to do. And there's obviously so much hardship out there for people trying to access help. But yeah, I mean, it's been really lovely and really positive, but it's also been a little bit heartbreaking hearing how many people are dealing with it. I mean, that's one of the things that we were curious about. You've weaved through your book, those beautiful stories. And I know you interviewed lots of people about their journeys with OCD and the way you integrated them into the book is so lovely. What was that experience like for you talking to other people with OCD? It was kind of like the whole experience of the book. It was really hopeful and really inspiring, but also really heartbreaking, you know, like I really wanted to include other people's stories because I wanted to show how differently it can present in different people. There's no one way to experience OCD and there are certain things that bind us all together, but the actual thoughts and the behaviours can be so different and so varied. So talking to people who have these stories, it was such a mixture of emotions. It was after some of the conversations I felt really 
sad and really I can just feel for them so much, you know, because I've been through it. But for the most part, it was really inspiring because all these people have been through so much and they're still going and they're still fighting it and they've mostly come out the other end. So it was really interesting experience. A lot of people will think this book is only for people experiencing OCD. Tori and I absolutely loved reading it as clinicians. We think it's such a valuable resource. Who can access this book? Where can they get it? Who is it for? Who do you imagine or who do you want to benefit from it? I mean, I guess primarily I wrote it for anyone who has suffered OCD or anyone who has a loved one or who knows someone close to them with OCD. And that's a lot of people. I feel like, I don't know, I feel like the stats aren't right when it comes to OCD. I feel like so many more people are suffering it than 2% of the population or whatever, 1% to 2%. But I think there are a lot of things in the book, or hopefully a lot of helpful information in the book for people who want to learn more about it um, so that they can help someone that they love. Because it can be a really difficult mental illness to deal with, to live with. You know, there's so many complications, especially when it comes to parents of kids with OCD with their, you know, compulsions and what you're meant to do with all that and how you're meant to, you know, really compassionately encourage them to stop the compulsions, I guess. So, yeah, I I hope it's for a, a bit of a broader audience and not just for someone who's specifically dealing with OCD, but who may know someone who might have it. When I was reading it, I mean, not only were your descriptions of what is OCD, the neuroscience of OCD, what is ERP, how to implement it, it was so beautifully written with great references. I felt like if someone is interested in learning how to treat OCD for clinician, they would get a lot out of this text, particularly given the way that you wove that instruction almost through the understanding of the pathology and just the real life examples of what OCD looks like rather than what does the DSM say OCD is. I mean, what you're saying is as clinicians, we get taught a really clear understanding of how to identify it from a clinical perspective. But then what you've done is said, and this is what it looks like in every day. This is what happens in relationships. This is the anguish that you might see in a client. And I feel like as a clinician, it gives an enormous amount of insight, far more than, you know, what our literal clinical training offers. And I think it's texts like yours actually that really enrich the work that clinicians do. And I think that the more of these kinds of texts that are available and that clinicians read, the better, to be honest. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Tori. Thank you for bringing that up as well. Because yes, that's absolutely another audience that it's intended for because, and we talked about this on the the last episode, I did you both about you know, I talk a bit in, in the book about my various experiences with psychologists and how they weren't always positive. And that wasn't always, that wasn't their fault. It was also me just not knowing what was going on and being really hesitant to go really deep with what was going on in my mind. But hopefully those stories will be really helpful for clinicians because it is so important to set up this really safe, trusting space quite quickly for someone with OCD so they do feel like they can delve into what's really going on. It's a complicated illness and it it does present so differently. And I don't know how much training a lot of, you know, psychologists do is specifically for OCD. I can imagine a lot of the time it's not a whole lot. So that's really amazing to hear that perspective from you. I really hope that it is helpful for clinicians and I do feel hopeful that there are more and more people out there who do have really good experience treating OCD. Yeah, I think it's growing. I get the sense that it's growing. The cover art, 
Beautiful. For those who um, haven't seen the cover of Penny's book, a lollipop that started being eaten and there are ants everywhere. <laughs> I've got, <laughs> got tingles. In my kitchen at the moment, actually. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, because of the wet weather? Yes, oh, my God. Are they all I don't know. I got my son's lunch out today. I got, the lam- I got these little lamingtons out and they were just covered in ants. <laughs> like, oh, no. <laughs> Coming in to escape all of the wet weather maybe. Yeah. Gross. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So gross. Yeah. So the inspiration behind the cover art. And if I may say also the title of the book, The Joy Thief. Yeah. It's funny. I had the title before I wrote the book, before I'd written anything. I don't know. It had been in my head for a long time. Like that's how I would describe OCD. And as I kind of wrote the book, it just made more and more sense to me that this would be a good title because I realized that any time throughout my life, where I was experiencing OCD, you know, I was, I was sort of stuck in a really bad kind of OCD hole. It felt like I couldn't experience joy or I couldn't let myself experience joy because, you know, I think when you have OCD, you're often thinking the worst about yourself. You can be thinking really awful thoughts about yourself and thinking that maybe you're a bad person or you're dangerous or you have the potential to make a whole lot of people sick or harm people or whatever it is, those thoughts take their toll after a while. You know, they really do and you can really start believing them. And if you're thinking the worst about yourself, you're not really going to let yourself experience joy, experience little moments of happiness. And I really found that that was the case for everyone I interviewed as well who was experiencing OCD. They kind of had the same feelings. And that's why I think that parts on um, self-compassion were really eye-opening for me. And hopefully really helpful for other people. It's so important, I think, self-compassion to be playing a part in OCD therapy. But yeah, the the cover art, I mean, it's it was always going to be the title and then went out to an artist. That's what they came back with. There was a few different versions, but this one just um, was really lovely and really colourful and just, it's it was, yeah, it was really well done. I If I had to do I'd be like, oh, my God, how would I ever depict the thief of joy? (laughs) The little ants are just genius. (laughs) Not just because they spoil things, but also intrusive thoughts can feel like a hundred million ants running around in your brain. And they can kind of like chip away at you, which is like what they're kind of doing with the lollipop on the cover. Little bits at a time. Before we wrap up, Penny, where can people buy your book? Um, look, pretty much all good bookstores. I saw it at the airport the other day. Oh, yay. Oh, that's so good. I'm always too scared to walk into books, bookshops in case it's not there. <laughs> <laughs> um, self-doubt creeping in. Um, <laughs> or it's in like the bargain bin. I know, I know. Oh, gosh. But no, it should be at most bookshops. You can get it on Book Depository online or Dimix online. And there's also some ebook versions as well. And for our clients, we're also selling it in the clinic. Oh, fabulous. They can access it there. Awesome. Thank you. All right. So you'll be familiar with our concluding questions, Penny. Well, you may or may not remember. I can't remember, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the first question we always ask someone is, what's something you know now that you didn't know earlier in your career? However... This time, can we ask you, what's something you know now that you didn't know before writing The Joy Thief? Oh, I think one thing I didn't really think about a whole lot before writing the book was 
how much perfectionism can play a part in OCD. And I don't mean lining things up perfectly or being really fastidious, but just a general expectation that I have of myself and how high those expectations are. And one of the books I referenced was the Self-Compassion Workbook for OCD by Kimberly Quinlan. And she talks about, I think, what she calls the pitfalls of perfection and how, you know, in life we should be aiming for like a B, not an A+. plus. That can be really scary for people, not just people with OCD, but anyone who has very high expectations of themselves. But ultimately that makes for a, a much more balanced life where you can actually be really compassionate to yourself and you don't always have to be striving for the best or striving for perfection because it ultimately just leads to more suffering. It was interesting when I, when I read that reference in your text, my stomach flipped. So that was really speaking to me. And actually the idea of aiming for a B intellectually, sort of conceptually sounded really good, but then my anxiety spiked. Yes, totally. Really? A B? Is, that's not enough. And then I was like, oh, okay, there's some work to be done. An incredible (laughs) life. It will be an incredible life because it's going to probably be better. (laughs) I love that example. Yeah, it's really interesting. Penny, did you experience? I'm sure you did, but, like, I don't want to make an assumption. Intrusive thoughts while writing the book, I'm assuming a lot would have come up for you during that time. And did you want to share any with our listeners? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, one of the things that happened whilst writing the book I actually did write about, which was I had a a period of about four months where I had my third child and there was a lot of other stuff going on just with our other kids and there was just a lot of stress and a lot of not much sleep. And I started to get really repetitive thoughts about my baby and about his development and that, that hadn't happened with my other two kids, but I started getting really obsessed whether he was meeting certain milestones, like whether he was smiling at the right time or whether he was just like making eye contact. And my brother-in-law had a baby at the same time. And so I'd always be comparing what their baby was doing and asking them or asking my husband constantly for reassurance and it was yeah this was something that had never come up for me before and so it was interesting that this was happening and like I said I was seeing my psychologist just online pretty much weekly and she was like we've got to start exposure and response prevention therapy with this straight away we've got to get onto it so I had to text my mum and dad because I still go to them for reassurance and I had to say to them if I ask a question about this can you please just kindly not answer and I had to say the same thing to my husband which actually was that was harder I think he always wanted to reassure me and you know I also had to do some googling around what if this is a condition that my child has down the track or what if he has this or and sit with that and then make a couple of voice audio kind of loops on my phone and listen back to them and this was a really hard thing to be doing when I was two months postpartum and my hormones were going crazy and I was had this book on my mind as well it was a lot going on but look ultimately as has happened so many times before once I got into the exposure therapy it kind of you know obviously initially the anxiety was really ramped up and then it really did start to settle down and it really did help so that was something that happened but, you know, just the dredging up of old thoughts as well, old intrusive thoughts, it certainly every now and then would trigger my anxiety and then 
And then I'd read about exposure and response therapy and be like, no, this is good. This is good. The only way, you know, I've got to go through it. It's got to be head first. And I do look back on when I started ERP and I realized how gung-ho I was about it from the get-go, which is not everyone's experience, but I think it was because I had such a long time of not being treated, not knowing what it was, that once I knew what the treatment was, I just went absolutely head first into it. And that's definitely paid out a bit. I certainly don't have that same motivation now, <laughs> but I think that initial willingness to get really uncomfortable really helped me in the long run. Well, Penny, thank you for writing this beautiful book. Really, it's glorious and such a welcome addition to the texts out there on OCD. I know that it's going to really, really benefit those, just the community at large, you know, particularly those with OCD. Thank you for being so brave and courageous as to write it. Oh, thank you so much. You're going to write another one, right? (laughs) Not in the short term. (laughs) No. (laughs) Hopefully, yes. That's my six-month-old baby for our listeners. Hopefully it brings back a lot of joy in people's lives. Such a wonderful resource. Thank you so much for dealing with everything you did in that journey through being a mum for the third time, dealing with all of that, dealing with your own therapeutic journey and putting the resource together. It's just wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your support and for your contributions as well in the book. Thanks, Penny. We'll speak again. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative, To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break break the the rules. rules.